Before the show even gets started today, before we play the creepy Brahms music, I want to take a minute here to let all of you know about another Sandman podcast. Endless, a Sandman podcast is part of the Chipperish Media Podcast Network. It's hosted by two people. It's hosted by Lonnie Diane Rich and Elisa Quitney. Now, Elisa Quitney is a name that you're going to start hearing us say a lot because she was one of the series editors on Sandman, beginning with Season of Mists, which is the next volume of Sandman that we're going to be covering here on this show. She also wrote a limited series about Destiny, who, of course, is a character in Sandman. I mean, we've only met him in one panel so far, but there is going to be more. And I have to say that Elisa's book is on our list of works that we'd like to cover once we've completed the Sandman run. It's really phenomenal just on its own. And Lonnie Diane Rich is also a best-selling writer. She's been a professional podcaster for over a decade, and I have been listening to her shows for nearly that long. She's done remarkable work on Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel, things that are very dear to both me and to Brent. And she also does this really awesome, really just excellent show on writing called How Story Works, and, and she also teaches writing. That show has been indispensable to me, and just in general, Lonnie has been an inspiration to me. This podcast network would not exist without her example. And so anyway, all of that is just to say that, hey, this is a team that knows what they're talking about, and I highly recommend Endless, a Sandman podcast. It's insightful, it's infectious, it's fun, you're going to love it, so go check it out. And now, let's go talk about Dream Country. Hello and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. This episode, Sandman number 20, Facade, cover date October 1990, art by penciler Colleen Doran, inker Malcolm Jones III, colorist Steve Olaf, letterer Todd Klein, Tom Payer again assistant editor, and Karen Berger again as editor. And this is it. This is the the last issue of Dream Country. So after this, we'll do a, a wrap up episode for that that volume, and then we'll move on to some some other things. But uh, in the meantime, also we have hit a Patreon goal. Uh, really, really grateful for our Patreon supporters to who helped us get there. And as a result of hitting this goal, we have done five extra bonus episodes, bonus bonus episodes, if you will, on Patreon. Uh, lots of really great stuff. Uh, Brandon and I did uh, Rats in the Walls. We did. A Gene Wolfe story that is a, a Sherlock Holmes pastiche with robots. That was a lot of fun. Valerie and I did the uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine episode in the Pale Moonlight. Really iconic, real fan favorite there. Uh, and Brandon and Valerie have done an episode of The X-Files. They've done Squeeze, which is also an iconic uh, fan favorite episode. Sadly, Brent, the Patreon supporters did not elect for you and I to do anything, though. Uh, we had two things on the ballot that we would have done. That's uh, the, the Newcastle story of Hellblazer, which has come up here in the Sandman. Uh, and then also we had on that ballot the uh, the Neil Gaiman short story, The Sleeper and the Spindle, both of which came very, very close. Uh, New uh, Hellblazer Newcastle actually missed it by, uh, I think, only two votes. So uh, uh, ne- next time, maybe next time. That would be awesome. And uh, folks who join us on Patreon, those who are Patreon supporters, uh, would love you picking some more Gaiman or some more revisiting of our good friend, John Constantine. Um, and for those of you who are not supporters, please consider uh, giving us a couple bucks over Patreon. We appreciate it. Helps keep the network alive. 
Yeah, we really do appreciate it. And and we, we we're coming up on some other really great goals here too. In fact, uh, uh, you know, now that we've hit this goal, actually spoiler, we've hit two goals since that one too, but we'll announce that on a later episode, but we have gotten much closer to doing uh, you and I Brent, doing the uh, first volume of Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing, which would be awesome. So uh, yeah, please do check us out on Patreon if you're at all interested in any of those things. But Let's talk about Facade, Brent. So uh, this is uh, a dream not appearing in this issue. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's been a little bit since we've had a not appearing in this issue uh, by dream, but uh, uh, we have one again here. And um, we do have, though, his sister Death, his big sister, making an appearance. And But other than Death, we don't have uh, any characters at all that we've seen previously um, in any Sandman. So... Um, this is kind of a, it's very much a one-off. Um, and when we get to the wrap up about, uh, the whole volume, I think we will have a lot of discussion about why this issue here, other than just, it was an idea that Neil wanted to write about it and it's just a short story, but kind of where it fits in the, in the whole picture of things. But, uh, I did want to mention off the top though, before we start getting in the recap, um, from High Bender's Sandman Companion, uh, there's an interview with Neil in which he's talking about where the idea came from. Um, and Neil said, Quote, it sprang from a set of images that just popped into my head. First of a woman living in a room with faces that would harden and fall off. And then the woman using those faces as ashtrays. I wedded that to an idea I'd had of somebody who was essentially suicidal and immortal. Somebody who wanted to die, but couldn't. And then uh, Neil decided um, upon thinking about who it should be, racked his brain for his memory of reading DC Comics um, as a young person and decided... Element Girl. I wanted to be Element Girl. And so, um, asked, uh, Karen Berger if, uh, she could get approval to, um, kill off Element Girl. Spoilers for the end of the comic. Uh, <laughs> and Karen Berger said, who's Element Girl? Is she part of the Legion of Superheroes? Cause to be fair, that does sound like a Legion of Superheroes character's name. <laughs> which we need to also get Patreons to start supporting us reading the Legion of Superheroes. Although that might be more of a Valerie Brent joint than a Glenn Brent joint, but uh, I would support that. I, I want to listen to that podcast. I would be your number one fan, but it, they looked into it and like, no, that's the, nobody particularly had done anything with Elman girl in quite a while. And so um, permission was granted for Neil to go ahead and use this character in this way. Well, that's really interesting. In fact, I was going to ask you if you had any insight about that, because my sense was, my instinct, my impulse here was that probably, because we are still early in the run of Sandman, that I, I guess I just was assuming that, in fact, Neil had been asked to maybe do something to uh, bring a little bit more of the, the DC universe back into the Sandman because it hadn't appeared in a, in a little while to at least make sure that every storyline was getting some bit of that. And this is this was kind of his almost just lip service to that. It's interesting that that's not at all what happened. This actually genuinely was his, his interest that he still at this point was thinking about how this is the DC universe and what things can he draw on there. And I'm glad he did that. I think this is a much better story than uh, we would have gotten if he didn't have uh, any kind of parameters and was maybe not even writing it necessarily for the Sandman, because I think otherwise you're just going to be writing a story about a vampire that wears masks and that nobody in the 90s needed any more vampire stories. Well, and there's actually a little bit of controversy about this issue. Um, And so I think this is a good place to actually discuss it a little bit, Glenn, because as you as you were wondering, was this something where 
Neo was specifically trying to bring in bits or told even from elsewhere, hey, bring in bits from elsewhere in the DC universe to help make sure Sandman stays tied into it. Um, and in some ways, it's actually the inverse. Before this issue came out, there was an issue of Captain Adam. Captain Adam is a superhero in the DC universe who has powers based on uh, radiation, you know, because that's what you do with half your superpowers. Um, <laughs> and at one point he dies or thinks he dies and he comes across um, meeting uh, death of the endless along with a couple other versions of DC characters associated with death. The favorite of mine, by the way, that he runs into is Black Racer, um, who was created by Jack Kirby as part of the New God series. And Black Racer is a Sergeant Willie Walker who was paralyzed during the Vietnam War. He's African-American character. Um, and he embodies um, the role of death um, when in Dark Side is coming to Earth. Um, and he is uh, depicted as a black man on skis. So think, you know, Silver Surfer, who Kirby also created as a surfer. So here we have basically a, a, a man on skis who is wearing a full suit of armor with a nice bluish tint to it, which is just it's the kind of bonkers that only Kirby can give us. And and, and, <laughs> and thank you, Jack Kirby, for that. But back to the uh, the possible impetus in part for this issue of Sandman, Neil had concerns with the way that death was depicted and the way that she describes herself in that Captain Adam issue that he did not write in which she is an aspect of death, that she's the compassionate aspect versus the duty aspect versus the inevitability aspect versus the faux aspect. And that's where um, Black Racer was supposed to be the kind of the inevitability and um, I believe and um, Necron who is some random DC villain who keeps getting pulled out and I don't particularly care for, but whatever as like the death as opponent. And Neil just thought this kind of cluttered the issue of who is death and what does death mean in the continuity of the DC universe that death is not similar to one of these other basically God level things. She and the endless or something that kind of reside outside of slash above. And so he specifically, and this is based on um, CBR.com, um, had an interview where they were following up with Neil on the specific story. Because there was a lot of stories that floated around that Neil didn't like the issue of Captain Adam and that he was angered by it and so on and so forth. And so Neil clarified that um, he just felt things got confused. Um, quote, she wasn't an aspect of death. She was death. When one day Necron or the Black Racer stop existing, she'll be there to take them. If the script or lettered comic had been run by me back then, then I would have noticed the continuity issues and corrected them. As it was, it wasn't a big deal. It was a fine comic as far as it went, but it tried to shoehorn death into DC continuity and got it wrong. So I clarified matters in Sandman 20. So I think, if anything, this is a comic in which Neil is trying to comment on what is going on in DC comics rather than DC comics trying to insert a character into Neil Gaiman's Sandman. Ah, awesome. That actually preemptively answers some questions that I had for you for when we get to a big monologue by death at the end of the issue. And I, I guess maybe this is just our cue to actually get started doing the recap, going through the, the scene by scene. So Facade is great. Facade has this uh, is a really awesome opening. It's this hard-boiled first-person narrative. I actually just want to read the opening here into the microphone to get us started because I think it's just so awesome. They say that cigarettes will kill you, eventually. 
Fine. That's just fine. I only wish they'd do it faster. I draw the smoke into my lungs, extract the nicotine and the tar. Doesn't do anything for me, but I like the smoke. I like the ash, the way it falls. I like breathing out the smoke. I like smoking cigarettes. It's something normal people do. I smoke a cigarette and pretend I'm normal. And I wish I was dead. And even without the accompanying images here, I mean, this monologue tells us everything we need to know about this character. Uh, she wishes that she were normal. And because she isn't normal, she wishes that she were dead. She can't even take pleasure from the small hedonistic things that people do. But the images that do go along with this are absolutely awesome. I mean, to my eye, the art here gives the whole thing a real film noir feeling. I mean, it's not black and white, so I guess technically it would be neo-noir. But right, it really emphasizes the, the text and it feels quite cinematic. It's just an, an amazing opening to this short story. And since you brought it up, let's pause from the recap to talk about the art briefly. So Colleen Doran came in. This is her first time working on a Sandman comic. And she specifically has a, has a direct way of viewing how she wants to approach art. Um, and so this again is from the Sandman Companion by High Bender, um, from an interview excerpt from her about drawing. She says, uh, Colleen Doran says, uh, a penciler does more than design a character's look. She has to get inside the character to figure out the right body language and subtleties of facial expression. Neil and I spent hours on the phone discussing for every single panel, what Rainey's face would look like, what her hands were doing, what her feet were doing, how her body would be slumped, and so on. I also acted out every scene in front of a big mirror to see what my own body did. When the story starts, we don't see much of Rainey, just a hand, a lump of a body, an eye, but the whole first page screams of anxiety. Every little detail contributes. The darkened room, the little clock, the cigarettes, debris on the table, and the creepy way she flicks ashes into a hardened, discarded face. And then it goes on about page two and kind of how she reacts to, to what we get to when, when we get to page two. But it very much, I think, Colleen Doran just nails it um, in terms of depicting character and kind of the depth of despair of being alone and unto themselves. Um, and it's just, it does a fact she does a fantastic job with the pencils here. And Neil also gives some credit to her look is a lot of credit to her as the artist doing the pencils, but also a remark that he thought Malcolm Jones, the third did a fantastic job as inker, um, helping additionally bring out some of the grit, um, in some of the shadows that are at play here too. So it just, Things are harmonizing really well in this comic, which goes back to our conversation about last issue. Um, you know, it, it's a whole team. So this is Neil Gaiman podcast, but Neil Gaiman focused podcast, but it's a whole team that puts together comic books. And it could be that the editors got an important role that changes the story in a way that makes it all that much better. And in many ways, um, the art really can elevate things. And I think it absolutely does here. I mean, this is, uh, I, I don't know when we do our wrap-up episode if my, my favorite panel uh, will come from this issue or, or not. I haven't thought that through yet. But I do think that this issue is just superbly drawn and it really works well with the the narrative. And, and this is, I think, really, you know, I've said several times that my favorite 
issues of the Sandman have a tendency to be the short stories and to come from these short story collections. And part of why is because they usually bring in a guest artist. And I think that that's really cool to get a different visual take on not just the characters who are familiar to us, but it allows for there to be a different type of, of storytelling, right? And that that's, that's a sense in which it makes Dream, uh, like many comic book characters, kind of an iconic character who has these kind of one-off adventures and then things reset, which is a thing that uh, our TV landscape doesn't like anymore, but is something that I still really like about things like Star Trek and Sherlock Holmes and and so on is the kind of iconic nature of characters that then allow for telling different types of stories and using different modes around them. And I really appreciate the way that uh, the art here gives us this kind of film noir type of story. And 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 the you know that's the visual language, but the story itself is is going to back that up. And we actually get that in the the character, the narrator here as well. So let, let's actually meet that person. Uh, we learn that her. Her name is Rainy Blackwell. Uh, Rainy is short for Urania, which is awesome. Uh, but of course, Urania Blackwell, if you are uh, super steeped in DC lore, uh, that name might mean something to you. We're going to get more on that in a moment. I mean, Brent, you've already tipped your hand on that a little bit, but we'll we'll have you put your comics historian hat on in just a moment. But uh, for now, what matters is that Rainy is lonely. And she calls a dude named Mulligan. Great name. Uh, she calls a dude named Mulligan to ask if her monthly check has been mailed. It hasn't yet, and she knows that. She knows that because it is always mailed on the same day every month. But we're given to understand that this question is really just an excuse to make the the phone call. It's an excuse to have someone to talk to, even if it's just for a minute here. And she she even actually tries to arrange a date with Mulligan, but it's against company policy. So, you know, he tells her that and has to deflect that. And after the phone call, Rennie sits down on her couch and thinks, the company is all I've got. And Mulligan is all I've got left of the company. Nobody ever comes here. Nobody phones. Nobody cares anymore. But then somebody does phone. The phone actually rings, and that brings us to the the title page. And so, you know, I just want to say, just like from these first few pages, that, they, that Gaiman is doing some really awesome world building in this teaser. He's showing us the fantastical element, uh, also the character's backstory, uh, but but doing so only in hints. Right? We're just getting teases here in the the teaser. Uh, For example, uh, when Rainey is soliciting Mulligan, she tells him that she can look the way she used to and that she can even feel like flesh uh, such that he almost couldn't tell that it's fake, that she's not actually flesh. Uh, The art does some of this work as well, uh, which which builds up to the title page, which kind of gives us this this revelation. And so I really like the slow build to this type of revelation where we're just getting these hints about the world here and and the, the fantastical element of this story. Yeah, so we we see very little of Rainy until the phone rings, and then we get this great title page um, in which we see her reeling back from the phone, um, and we see what, you know, almost, it reminds me of Frankenstein's monster in some way, right? We've got someone who looks like perhaps their skin has bandages over it. Um, It turns out that that's, no, that's just the way her skin looks, Um, but there's different coloration going on and her nose doesn't look quite right. And it's just, it's kind of this reveal um, of, you know, someone who very much is, it's the kind of thing where uh, the thing that would scare you, maybe if you came across it unexpectedly in the night is now reeling and scared of its own phone ringing, which is kind of tells a lot about, who this person is. Um, and it also can reveal things about you as a reader and how you interact with stuff to those who are fans of DC comics. 
around this time, uh, Metamorpho uh, has made his appearance a few more times. He originally is a character who came out in the uh, early 60s, um, has you know similar powers to what um, Rainey has. And she actually debuted in the late 60s in his book. Uh, and that book only got canceled. The uh, Well, she de- debuted in Element Man number 10, which came out in cover date of January, February 1967. And that original series actually ran its course by, um, I believe it was uh, only one to issue 17. So she made some appearances in there and she hadn't really appeared herself in DC continuity again until this point, but Metamorpho had reappeared and he has a very distinctive way of looking where there's um, the green hair and the white face and kind of the orange and kind of almost cherry red different sides of the body. And then, you know, the superhero trunks and then um, slightly different colored legs. And so for folks like me, I remember reading this and I knew who Metamorpho was. Um, I wasn't necessarily a fan of his, but I, I, I didn't know enough to know whether I cared for him or not, but I'd seen him appear in big crossover events and sometimes maybe interact with the Justice League folks or whatever. But I'm like, wait, this looks like it's just a female version of Metamorpho. And in some ways it was. Uh, her origin story, uh, Urania Blackwell, was that so she was working at the CIA um, and she voluntarily um, uh, subjected herself to the same things, which we'll get to later in the issue, that caused Metamorpho to become Metamorpho. And here we have her kind of, you know, years later, retired from her job, kind of regretting that decision. Yeah, and we get some of that backstory here, though it's presented a little bit differently. The the it, It's used here, it's done here as a, a dream sequence. She dreams about the accident that made her this way, that transformed her into element girl. And, and yeah, what we see here is that she was a CIA operative. Her, her last mission was to go into an Egyptian pyramid and get superpowers, uh, which is, this is what had happened to Rex Mason. Is that, is that metamorpho yes. is Rex Mason? Rex Mason metamorpho. Is okay. Yes. <laughs> Great. That makes perfect sense to me now. <laughs> and, and, you know, in some sense, this mission is a success, right? She does go into the pyramid. Her body is altered. She has this metamorphic power now. Uh, Gaiman doesn't spell any of that out for us. And I love that element as well. That's great world building there. But there is a weird thing going on in the dream that gives us this information, which is that the dream is not a memory. Uh, The setup and the outcome are the same, but the process is different because in this dream, she encounters the Egyptian sun god, Ra, who, who gives a speech about how he's going to turn her into a warrior who can help him with his battle against Apep, who is the, the god of, of chaos and is, is usually depicted as a, a snake in ancient Egyptian art. But even as Rainy is dreaming this, she thinks this isn't how it really happened. In, in reality, there was just the stone of Ra, not Ra him, himself. So that's a really interesting bit of the, the dream here where... Maybe it, it's even though we've, we said, you know, at the top of the show that dream does not appear in this story, uh, you know, dreams do a dream does appear in this story. And it's a dream that is almost a metaphor for what really happened. And I, I just wonder about her experience of going into the dreaming and and almost getting her own backstory represented more literally than the than it actually happened for her. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think about you know, kind of dreams in our own lives and and the fact that, I mean, just the other night I had a dream in which there are elements of things that from my memory did happen that way, but then there are, there were people who were there who were not there. 
right? Um, and there are places that were not there. But in some ways, the story, the narrative, such as it was that my dream was telling, maybe was more true, if not fact, kind of. So again, maybe it's somewhat a commentary on kind of the role of stories in telling tales of, of how we think of ourselves. And also, you don't necessarily have a lot of control over how your dreams come to you. Um, but in some ways, maybe this is actually her subconscious and this is the narrative that she's told herself in terms of um, how she feels. And, you know, um, the depiction of her being changed into a metamorphe is just like being with raw kind of grabbing her body and um, like massaging in like moving her body like it's clay and this extremely terrified look on her face. Was it that awful and terrifying when it occurred? Probably. But even if it wasn't like that is clearly how she feels and looks back on it now that like she was changed into something that terrifies her. Well, I think it's a great observation. This just even just to use the language that we had in A Midsummer Night's Dream, right? Things don't have to have really happened in order to be true. And that's what we're getting here. Though this is gonna this is gonna come back. This experience is what this story is about. We're kind of this is maybe kind of act one, the the dream, the backstory is act one of her story, at least as far as this issue is concerned. What we're getting right now is act two. And then you know, we're gonna get the third act when when death shows up, which I guess, you know, is he tells us exactly what's going to happen, even if uh even if you have not read the read the issue, well, let's uh, let's deal with this phone that's ringing. We kind of, we, we <laughs> sidestep that a little bit, Brent. So you know, Rainy answers the phone. It's her friend. Uh, it's a former coworker named Della who wants to meet her for lunch. Uh, this is awesome. Rainy's been feeling lonely, but it does mean that she's going to have to put her her face on. So she does that, and it turns out that Della has invited Rainy to lunch because she wants to share her big news, which is that she's pregnant. The father's a co-worker at the, the CIA here. He's, uh, he's married to someone else, but he's definitely going to divorce that woman as long as Della doesn't tell anyone that she's pregnant right now. <laughs> Uh, don't think that story is actually going to end the way that Della wants it to, but we're not here for Della. Uh, we're here for Rainy, who is super nervous to be out in public with this uh, silicone face on. And she tells Della that she can't take her gloves off because she has a, a skin condition. So even though, right, we're, we're, we're given to understand that these are old friends, Rainy doesn't actually talk to Della about what happened to her, which might be something to do with you know security clearance and the nature uh, of the mission, but might also just be because maybe they weren't actually really friends like that to, to begin with. But in either case, their conversation is interrupted when Della looks out the window and she sees some kids with atypical physiologies. There's a, a little girl without legs in a wheelchair. There's a boy who's missing one arm. And Della calls them freaks, and she says that they make her skin crawl and that she is worried that her baby will be a freak as well. And Rainy doesn't, you know, just ignore this. She says, uh, these, these these are people, and they're just people. But it's at this exact moment that Rainy's face hardens and it, it falls off, and she flees the restaurant. And she's horribly, I don't know, embarrassed, maybe horrified by this, and she flees the restaurant. She gets back to her apartment building, realizes she's left her keys at the restaurant, but, you know, that doesn't matter for her because she can just destroy the lock with her elemental powers. And once she's in her apartment, she calls Mulligan at the CIA only to learn that he doesn't work there anymore. He's been transferred to another department. And, and although it's not stated on the page, almost certainly because she tried to meet him. 
So Rainy is in a bad spot right now. She's in a bad place right now. And, and, and we'll pick up there in a moment. But this scene has given us the, the real theme of this story, I, I think, or at least a major theme of this story, which is to say freaks, right? This is a story about how Urania Blackwell is suffering simply because other people don't treat her like a person because of what happened to her body. Uh, and Gaiman is maybe not so subtly uh, pointing out that we're the jerks here, right? People like Della are the problem. It's it's not Rainey's job to make her face more presentable. It's it's Della's job. It's maybe it's our job to not care what her face looks like, to treat her like a person no matter what her face looks like. And in some ways it's also just a commentary on I mean all of these characters that we've encountered except for maybe Save the Endless. They're just people. So, you know, superheroes, they're just people. You know, people with otherwise different physiologies where there could be additional limitations. They're just people. No one's a freak here. It's just that everyone is dealing with their own thing and we're all just people. So Rainey is in bad shape, right? She's in bad shape now that she's gone through this experience of having to reveal her face in public. And she wants to kill herself. But the problem is that she doesn't know how uh, because she's got these powers. Um, maybe, you know, we should say, f- frame it this way because of what happened to her body. She, she doesn't have any blood. Uh, gases also can't kill her. Bullets don't harm her. Even if she split herself up and melded with the ocean or the air or something like that, she would probably still have a consciousness even without a coherent body. And so, she, she doesn't know how to end her own life. But death is here, and we recognize this character, of course, because we've seen her a few times in The Sandman so far, but Rainy doesn't know who she is, and death just says that the, the door was open, she heard crying, and, and came in. That is going to turn out to be true, but I, I have to say, Brent, that I definitely thought that this meant that Rainy had died already. I mean, it's clearly a trick, and it is a nice trick. It really worked on me. Yeah, and I thought it was going to be that she died, but we just somehow died off panel. Um, and so, you know, it'd be the, her looking down and seeing her body or something. Um, and, but that it's not at all what happened. Uh, instead death was just in the neighborhood and decided to stop by, which, I mean, it kind of reminds me of, uh, Dr. Who, where he just like sees a child (laughs) crying. And so he comes by. And so here we have the, the equivalent here. I would like to see the uh, the Doctor Who and Death uh, team up. Someone's probably actually done that, though. I have no idea who owns the rights to do Doctor Who comics, but uh, <laughs> that would be great. I, I'm at least writing some fan fiction about it in my head right now. Well, in any case, uh, Death is here right now. Doctor Who is not, but Death is here to help. Uh, she's here to offer, uh, you know, some comfort to Urania Blackwell. Right? She's here to be a friend. And she observes that Rainey is having a hard time letting go of her old identity, right? She keeps all of her faces around, you know, to use them as ashtrays, and she hangs them on the wall and does some other things with them. And she suggests that, you know, maybe Rainey could learn to throw things away after they've served their their purpose. She does also know something about Rainey's condition. This is actually where we get this term metamorphi uh, that you've used already, Brent. And she explains that people like her will eventually die. It just will take a long time. Uh, 2,000 years is a, a, a time frame that's thrown out here. Though that death that she's invoking there is actually still an accidental death and not a, uh, a natural death. So, you know, potentially significantly longer than 2,000 years. 
But what I'm really drawn to the most in this scene is Death's monologue about who she is and how she works. And, you know, it turns out, Brent, you've already explained to us that this is this is Gaiman getting on his soapbox and definitely wanting to do some world building here to uh, to clear up some confusion that uh, um, or to maybe to reappropriate his creation from the work of some other other artists here on uh, in, in DC Comics. And, and this is something that happens, by the way, after Rainey understands that this is Death who's here. I do think it's worth just quoting here from this monologue and then we can we can talk about it. So here is what Death says. I'm not blessed or merciful. I'm just me. I've got a job to do, and I do it. Listen, even as we're talking, I'm there for old and young, innocent and guilty, those who die together and those who die alone. I'm in cars and boats and planes, in hospitals and forests and abattoirs. For some folks, death is a release. For others, death is an abomination, a terrible thing. But in the end, I'm there for all of them. Rainy, in West Africa, a small village is being massacred by mercenaries in pay of their own government. I'm there. In the farthest reaches of a distant galaxy, a planet is being ripped apart by internal stresses. The planet was the home of many crystal intelligences, calm and fine and beautiful. I'm there as well. I'm in all those places. And I'm also here, talking to you. But I'm not your death. At least not yet. When the first living thing existed, I was there, waiting. When the last living thing dies, my job will be finished. I'll put the chairs on the tables, turn out the lights, and lock the universe behind me when I leave. And uh, this is the biggest bit of cosmology that we're going to get in Dream Country. We haven't actually had something like this since the end of Doll's House. We learn a lot here. We also get some things that we've already learned reinforced. Yeah. I mean, it's clearly just kind of a a foot stomp on restating death's role relative to the rest of the continuity um, with, you know, perhaps a little bit of clarification coming in. And um, I mean, I think it's interesting in the context of these things. So frequently there are some discussion about whether there's any kind of obligation or duty that a company that owns the characters, you know, DC comics has any kind of duty to, talk to the creator of a character about how that character is depicted, given that in many cases it's kind of work for hire. And so the actual intellectual property copyright for these characters is retained by DC comics. And you've got characters like Superman and Batman who are written about by so many different authors and reinvented all the time. And that's part of what makes them great. But for people who want to have a continuity and want to say, no, Batman is this way or no, death is this way, particularly relative to other things, it can be frustrating because it can be like, I really wish they would leave that character alone. You'll hear that phrase all the time. Um, I really wish they would leave that alone. I wish they would, you know do this way. There's been a lot of discussion post the events of Neil Gaiman's reaction to the Captain Adam and and the treatment of death and then his kind of response within this character of whether after this point, the general understanding is that DC Comics editors tend to check with him about the use of a characters. I'm not sure I've actually seen that that is contractually a requirement, but that's something that they seem to do. But I mean, given the fact that in many ways, a lot of the use of characters um, in, in any kind of superhero continuity is simply in some ways kind of fanfic, right? I mean, it's the intellectual properties owned by DC, but even Neil Gaiman writing about, you know, taking the character of destiny, 
or taking the character of Element Girl. He didn't create either of those characters. He didn't create any of the, the prior Sandmans that we've seen uh, from the Golden Age or, you know, the one that existed only in, you know, a abused boy's sleeping head. Like those in some ways are DC using intellectual property to allow Neil Gaiman to write fanfic. And Neil Gaiman's general stance on fanfic is that he's in favor of it. He points out he's won an award for a fanfic, which is a short story of Sherlock Holmes, you know, interacting with HP Lovecraft stuff. Right. But in a universe in which, you don't own the rights to stop someone from doing something with your character. And also you don't want to actually come out to say someone should not do something with your character because you do want to maintain the ability for like, look, it's, it's a character. I don't want you to make, if, you know, if it's my intellectual property, I don't want you to make money off of it. If I'm not making money off of it. Right. But you should have some freedom to tell your own stories with this. Then I think that this comic is a good way of actually, you know, taking the approach of like, let me just lay out what death's role is with a much longer monologue than death had for the, you know, three or four panels of uh, that, that she spoke in the captain Adam issue about her, what her relationship is to just clarify once and for all, where it's clearly not perhaps a dream state, which it might've been in captain Adam as to what this character actually means relative to the universe that, she slash it exists in, right? Even though you are the the, the resident comics expert here, Brent, I, I am a pretty big comics fan. I just don't always keep up on them, but I read a ton of Batman. Spider-Man is also a character I really like. Part of what I enjoy about the superhero comics, uh, you know, the characters that I gravitate towards is actually the joy of reading them again and again and seeing how different writers tug on different threads, different aspects of their story, uh, you know, update them for a contemporary setting uh, or move them to some other setting like, you know, Batman, uh, Batman by, by Gaslight, for example, and, and that sort of thing. That's part of what I love about these iconic characters is the way that you can, uh, the way that individual writers will have different takes on them. That's part of the joy for it. But I do also see where that can be frustrating for trying to do something that's a continuity, especially when you are writing a, a comic book series that is essentially one continuous story, or at least that's the way it's shaking up right now in the Sandman. Of course, it is going to turn out that way, that having your characters appropriated and put in some different contexts uh, seems then to undermine the work that you're trying to do. And so there's maybe just some inherent tension in the the way that DC is kind of, in the way that DC is trying to have it both ways here. I don't actually know, Brent, it, does Vertigo exist as a line yet at this point? And is this maybe part of the impetus to create Vertigo to kind of cordon this stuff off from the rest of the DC universe? I don't think Vertigo exists at this point. Um, I could be wrong, but I also don't think that the creation of Vertigo didn't necessarily cordon stuff off continuity wise so much as it was a way to market slash clarify slash, you know, stave off concerns by potentially angry parents as to what was mature content. So right now, DC, um, as we're recording this, has um, a label they call DC Black Label, and it's it's supposed to be for mature, mature audiences. So you'll see language, and you might see graphical representations that are considered more adult in theme, and so they're not for younger readers. Um, and so I think that's more what Vertigo did, because in theory, 
and as we'll see, even once there is clearly a vertigo imprint, which there is later, we will still see like the return of favorite DC comics characters like Martian Manhunter. It's not kind of cleaving off into a separate thing. Um, so I still think this is probably a matter of editors talking to editors for approval kind of thing. And, you know, it's some, and I couldn't find a clear attribution on this, but it seems like there might've been that there was an editor to editor conversation with Karen Berger about someone, um, using, um, death in the Captain Adam comic and, and she didn't think anything of it. And I don't know that there's anything particularly wrong with that issue. And so the, some of the internet stories are like Neil Gaiman hates that issue. And, but his direct quote now is that. You know, whether he's just putting on a good face or not is that he does not hate that issue. He just thinks it's unfortunate in that it muddles the concept that he is going for. And so if you read this comic, not as Neil lashing out in anger and just Neil trying to clarify the character, particularly for the context of the stories he is writing, I think that that's a different way to view it, but. Well, let's look at the content, actually, of this speech a little bit here. We've kind of talked about it in this meta perspective, but let's actually zoom in on what she's really saying, because there's some interesting stuff here. I mean, for one thing, this answers, uh, or at least maybe hints at some answers to questions that we had in A Midsummer Night's Dream about Dream and 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 all of the Endless, their relationship with the fairies. I, I'm still not comfortable with with the fairies and how they fit into this <laughs> this cosmology. But, you know, one of the questions that we were asking was, was who are the endless for? Are they actually for the fairies? Are they for all sentient creatures? Are they for the entire universe and all the living things in it? And that is, you know, manifestly clear here, right? Death says that. There's these uh, crystalline entities that she also is death for, right? She's not just for humans. She ranges not even just this galaxy. She ranges the entire universe, all of creation. I still am not comfortable with how fairies seem to exist outside of this, but, you know, maybe someday we'll get some more about that. But there is also then this, this restaurant metaphor that envisions, strangely, I think, envisions the universe continuing to exist just without any sentient creatures in it. Like, they're all going to leave and then she locks up, but, you know, the universe is still there. It's just empty. It doesn't envision the collapse of the the universe. This is maybe, it's a, I mean, it's clearly a particular cosmological model, but it strikes me as kind of a strange one. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of does in some ways, but in other ways, if it, if it's just getting back to they're not freaks, they're just people. If to some extent everyone we're interfacing with are just other than the endless, are just people, it's just that they're, you know, they're fairies, but they're just people who are this way or, you know, the gods are like Black Racer or like Ra are just very, very, very superpowered people in quote unquote, then maybe it makes sense that, you know, once you take all of the things that are part of that, that, that come up with their own dreams and their own thoughts, conscious entities that once they're all gone, then there's not really a reason to not just lock things up and, and, you know, leave the house alone and go somewhere else. It, it does open up the like, well, where does death go to? Um, and there are questions about, <laughs> well, where did the endless come from? Um, um, and there's actually a great depiction. Um, the final issue of the four issue prestige, um, books of magic actually depicts this, this bit in which death is locking up the universe at the end of time to after everything is gone. Um, after she 
takes everyone. And so I think it's a kind of a unique mythology in some ways in that it's got an end that's not a violent struggle at the very last moment. And it's not everything collapsing. It's just kind of things being left alone. Once everyone who tells or is part of stories is no longer in it, then there's no reason to stick around, I guess, in terms of the importance of story, which we've come to again and again. Right. In in thinking about this as an actual cosmological model, I, I, I guess what I'm envisioning is just that, yeah, there are no people, there's no sentience left in the universe, but it's just, the door's just locked. So someone could come by later and unlock it and use it Again, it, I mean, like it's, you know, the metaphor here is a restaurant shutting for the night, but presumably it's going to open again tomorrow. And so there's a sense here, uh, one of maybe there's a kind of cyclical thing going on here, a cyclical idea of creation, which might actually, this might actually just be kind of a metaphor for uh, the model that cosmologists or physicists, uh, astrophysicists uh, call the big bounce, which I do not think is the pre- currently preferred cosmological model of what's going to happen to the, the universe over time. But it does also suggest to me anyway that just because that that all that's happened is that the door is locked, but the things going on inside the universe are still going on, that like physical stuff is still happening. So like the earth will still be here. They're just, you know, weather will be happening, geological time, geological change and physical change of all sorts of things. The matter still exists. All of that will still be happening. So in the metaphor, the restaurant metaphor, whenever tomorrow morning is and this place opens back up again to be a coffee shop before becoming a fancy restaurant in the evening, time will still have passed and change will still have happened, at least is my sense of it. I don't get the sense that there's kind of a pause or that this thing is like torn down, right? And that's, I guess, what I, what, what struck me as strange. I guess that's true. And in a scientific sense, like if all of the, you know, the stew that is all of the chemicals and, and components that in theory could spontaneously create, you know, end up in life existing are still present, then... At what point is really kind of death able to lock that door? Because even if all life has died, if the components that are possible to spontaneously create life are still there, then isn't there a, you know, a role for her to, and maybe that's the reason why the door is locked and not destroyed is that death would then have to return if there were things to again be able to die. And another interesting concept that comes up in the, in the speech, and it's kind of a little bit later on on the next page, but, um, she talks about, you know, the never ending fight that Ra had with a pep and the fact that a pep is dead and she took a pep. So here we have, um, not for the first time, I think, but in a very real way, we have Neil Gaiman pulling in the existence of mythological gods from ancient mythology you know, having them be real, you know, living beings, but also the idea that they can die um, and kind of so where death sits relative to them, that she's the one who takes them when their time is done. Um, but also the fact that they're very much still around in the, the case of Ra, which I think we'll see, you know, play out uh, a lot. And I think this is kind of some essential world building he's doing for the trade that follows this, that we'll get to soon enough, the seasons of mist where um, season of mist, where you're going to um, see a whole bunch of kind of figures from classical mythology and folklore being brought into this continuity and into the woven into this story. Um, but where they sit is slightly under the endless in a cosmological sense, right? 
Right. This is a big part of what's going on here. I mean, we've lingered on this kind of cosmological aspect of this conversation because, you know, I really gravitated towards that. All Rainey really heard here is that she might have to live for 2000 years, which she describes as as being something uh, that would be a, a hell for her. And she really pleads with death here. Death agrees to, to help her. And she doesn't doesn't mean she's going to kill her, but she'll give her some information that she can use if she wants to. And this is where she explains this business about how the chaos god Apep is dead, died 3,000 years ago. She took him. For some reason, Ra doesn't seem to realize that, though, and he keeps making these warriors, the, the metamorphi, who are supposed to help him in this fight that he's actually already won. But Death here just suggests that Rainy talk to Ra to, to ask for his help, and she says that all that that means is talking to the sun, right? Which is not how we think of the sun. So, you know, here I was kind of trying to break down this restaurant metaphor and harmonize that with actual physics, actual cosmology. But here, you know, death is kind of flipping that on its head, right? Where she's saying that, well, there is an, a personality that is the sun. And in fact, actually, that there are several of them that are the sun. And that's that's really fascinating. And so, because, you know, this idea that, that that Ra is just one of many, in fact, what she says is he's the son. Well, sort of one of them. Uh, you know, what what does she mean by that, right? She has to mean that that every mythology that has a personified son, that personified son actually is a person who exists in the world in a very real way, the same way that we've seen Calliope exist for real in this volume of Dream Country. Yeah, I think she's saying that you know, the individual that is Ra and other sun gods um, do exist um, or did at least if, if maybe they've passed now, but in case of Ra still exist. And then she specifically says that um, mythologies take longer to die than people believe. They linger on in a kind of dream country um, that affects all of you. And so there we have, you know, not only like, let me call out the title of the volume in the last issue of the volume. Um, <laughs> But we also have some important world building about, you know, there's the individual that is raw, but then there's also the mythology that includes raw, but is not limited to raw, which kind of, you know, exists outside of that. But the fact that it affects things and it's kind of lingering in, you know, the way it interfaces with stuff, the way dreams might kind of elevates that as, you know, um, mythology as, kind of sources of inspiration and kind of more contextual things beyond just actual beings that, you know, Superman could maybe punch in the face. Right. And this is an idea that is very important for the rest of the Sandman run. Uh, but it's also an idea that we see on Neil Gaiman going to a lot throughout his short stories and his longer work. Clearly American gods is kind of the, an exploration of this very concept in terms of, mythologies from, you know, various old worlds um, that have either traveled to, um, you know, uh, the North American continent or already sprang up into life originally in the North American continent um, and how they interface with each other, both individually, but also kind of in a, on a conceptual level, if you will. 
And this is one of my favorite things that Gaiman does. This is one of my favorite creative moves that he makes. It's something that really draws me to his work. So I'm excited to get that spelled out here, or at least partially spelled out here, and to know that he's really going to double down on this going forward. I'm excited to get to American Gods someday as well. Also, you know, you you did invoke earlier, Brent, I, I, I can't believe I didn't pounce on it immediately, but you invoked a study in Emerald. That's the uh, the Holmes Lovecraft uh, pastiche. Uh, we're definitely going to do that because uh, that's that's one of my absolute favorites. I, I got really, really excited. My heart raced when you, uh, even just when you alluded to it. So excited for, uh, excited for a lot of things to come. But we're we're actually still not done with this issue. So you know, Death tells Rainy, just talk to Ra, and so she does, and she does what I think any of us would do when we're initially trying to talk to the sun slash look at the sun, which is initially she's shielding her eyes as she's trying to talk to Ra, and then at some point. She just looks at it directly and she sees it in a way that she's never realized or seen it before. And then she seems to just disperse, dissipate. And then the phone rings and death answers and says that she's not living there anymore. And so Rainey's not there. So I think we're, we're taking it to mean that Ra has, or that Ra has granted Rainey's request for release from life. Yeah. Interestingly, you know, she, what she asks him is to, to make her normal again. And, you know, that's also that she wants, not necessarily that she's asking to die or to be released from life, but, but this is what happens. And I, I wondered if, if that he did actually make her normal again, but the consequence of that is that she, she crumbles uh, or if he maybe sensed, you know, this, uh, the fact that she has expressed several times in speech and also in internal monologue uh, that she wants to die, that he, he was understanding that he was feeling that from her. And so did, did just kill her directly. I wondered if you had a, a sense of that, Brent. I mean, I get the sense that there's a kind of a release where he, he did basically grant her a release um, to, to, to die unless she ended up somewhere else. Cause we don't see her transformed into a normal, you know, a, a quote unquote normal person again, but we do see this, you know, she nicely describes, and I kind of want to go over this cause it's, it's an interesting concept. She says, as she looks at the sun without shielding her eyes, the sun, it's just a mask too. And the face behind it, it's beautiful. It's, and she just looks elated at this point. And on the one hand, this is kind of like, it seems, and it, it's depicted very much like kind of acceptance and joy at the fact that, you know, we all have masks. And so she's not alone in the context of having a mask and seeing behind it. Um, also, I think it juxtaposes nicely, even perhaps even more so, it juxtaposes nicely with her seeing behind Ra's mask that is the sun and finding it beautiful versus what her dream view of, you know, the powers she thought she did not want being thrust upon her that we saw earlier, right? Where like it was terrifying that she was, she, she wanted to scream and she could not, which is the best way to signify that a dream is not going well, by the way. It's just, you know, <laughs> um, I, I want to scream, but I have no mouth or, you right. Know. <laughs> but I think that that's an interesting idea in terms of, the sun as not just Ra, but a mask that Ra wears. And therefore, I guess we have to infer that she's seen his true face, right? His true form, his true aspect, and that 
that's actually kind of, and that she's having something of a religious experience here when she sees this this form. And, and I think we see that borne out in both uh, her facial expression and her body language here in the art, that there's something ecstatic that is that is happening to her. But there is also this idea with the, the masks and what's behind the mask being beautiful because she is someone who wears a mask but does not think that what is behind the mask is beautiful. Maybe more importantly, is worried that other people, if they saw what's behind the mask, would not think that it's beautiful and in fact will recoil from her and that that's something that she can't handle. I mean, we see that in the restaurant when she doesn't even stick around. She doesn't give Della a chance to react to her or anyone else, though maybe Della already had tipped her hand, but she doesn't even give anyone a chance. She just can't even face that situation because she's so terrified of it. But here she's seeing that what that, that, that something beautiful can be behind a mask. The world she'd built for herself, kind of when we meet her in this comic where she is in her one-bedroom apartment, um, and she's got masks hanging on the wall, which are just when she's done this, you know, created these masks, which is the only way she feels she can go outside, but still is extremely anxious and self-conscious about that. And she hangs them on the wall or uses them as ashtrays. It's a constant reminder of her own insecurities. And it's just even more depressing than to see her in that environment where she's literally in some ways hanging up the facade that she feels she needs to put on in order to do anything to leave her abode. Um, and it's it's really sad. Yeah, this is a really sad issue. I'm not sure we have emphasized that enough, but Rainey is not, she's not in a good place. I mean, she's clearly suffering from, from isolation, a, a depression perhaps brought on by the isolation. She needs people in her, her life. And, and there, there's a real irony here at the end, a tragic irony at the end, right? The, the phone rings just as or just after Rainey dies, death answers it, and it, it's Mulligan. Uh, this is really heartbreaking, at least the way that I'm understanding it, Brent. You may have made a different inference than I did, but my sense is that maybe Mulligan wasn't actually transferred so that Rainey couldn't contact him anymore, but that he requested a transfer so that he could go on a date with her, the date she invited him on, without breaking the CIA's rules, and that if only she had waited even just a few more minutes, she might actually have found what she was really looking for, which was companionship, but that, you know, because she thought that that was something that she could never have again, she just wanted out. She just wanted to get out of this situation. And man, that's, that's heartbreaking to me. Yeah. I mean, if that's the case, then it definitely makes this kind of, you know, a big tragedy. And I was, it's not left, I mean, it's left for you to interpret, like, is that the way things are, which under normal story construction, that, that is what you'd assume. Um, but I'm because we don't have the evidence there, I don't know whether it's that or whether it's just he at least recognizes that she in some ways he he in some ways is her seeming only friend, and that, you know, even if there's not an interest for some kind of a romantic relationship, he at least wants to check in on her um and wants to see is she doing okay? He, you know, is used to talking to her once a week or whatever, so it's just he, this isn't he you have that routine right uh, where we we've all had that point where we're working on something and then when we switch jobs or switch to something else we still sometimes then they're like well this is the day when normally i talk to so-and-so when we were working together so i'm going to give them a call and see how they're doing because you 
you know, just miss talking to them. So it's, it's kind of left open to, to how you interpret it, but to make it seem more of a tragedy. And it's, I mean, the whole story is, you know, in talking about the story, Neil Gaiman said, um, and this is high bender, um, from his uh, interview with him in the Sandman companion. Um, he said, it's really about someone whose life has just shrunk. You want to say that to that person, but you're amazing, cool, and powerful. You can do anything, and yet you're living in a one-room flat, scared to go out. But from Rainey's perspective, she's stuck in a body that's no longer even remotely human, and she's facing the prospect of spending the next 10,000 years smoking cigarettes in a room full of empty faces. She doesn't see how to get free of that, except by dying. Is the suicide ending problematic? Quite possibly. Do I, as a person, think Rainey's solution was the correct one? No, I don't. But none of that bothers me because I feel the ending works in the context of the story. I feel it's true to itself. And so maybe, Glenn, the fact that she misses the call and its tragedy is Neil's way of kind of signaling that maybe the decision that Rainey made was not the right one. It doesn't mean it isn't the true way the story goes, but that like this is not the correct way to go. Um, and I don't know, he never explicitly says, like, this is the way to remind people who maybe are feeling suicidal who happen to be reading Sandman at this point, like, <laughs> just hold out, you know, things are not that bad and there's a phone call that might come. You don't want to miss it, no matter what the phone call is for, but it, it's not entirely clear. Well, and I, I do think this maybe circles back as well to Della calling people freaks and, and really clearly indicating that she just wishes that people like that wouldn't wouldn't be out in society so she wouldn't have to be faced with her own fears or something like that. That Rainey's isolation, her depression, her suicidal feelings are not directly drawn from the physiological change that's happened to her body. They are drawn from the way that people are treating her because of the physiological change to her body. So if we, people who are not Rainey, had treated Rainey better, had not shoved her into this crappy looking apartment with and just told her to chain smoke for 10,000 years, maybe she could actually be leading a, a, a functioning, happy, healthy life in a community of some sort. So it's you know, it's 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 our fault that this is that this is happening, right? It's 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 incumbent on us really to to make a society that is open and and welcoming to people like Rainey, not one that is af afraid of them or uh, embarrassed by them or horrified by them and has to shut them away, right? Or th thinks about them as something undesirable that you you know you're that panicky that when you're pregnant that you don't want your child to be a freak and that your focus would be that your child at that point would be a freak and not your child, which is kind of a terrifying way of looking at things. Right. Della makes no comment about how obviously she will love her child unconditionally, no matter what her baby turns out to be, who her baby turns out to be. None of, none of that expressed there. No, no disrespect to Rainey, but um, Della, if, if Rainey is – the contact, the phone number who Della thinks I should call after not talking to her for, I don't know, a decade or more. And like, this is who she wants to go interact with. It says a lot about Della as a person, um, I think. Um, and the fact that Della doesn't have any friends and that may not be for the reason that Rainey doesn't have any friends. It may not be because she doesn't go out and have confidence to, to interact with people. It may be because 
Dell is kind of terrible. <laughs> right. In fact, yeah. in and, many yeah. ways, Della is the ugliest part of the ugliest visual thing in this story, right? And she's drawn very normally, so there's nothing in the art to necessarily depict that. But like, and she doesn't, she doesn't run after her friend when she falls off, but she doesn't, she kind of makes an excuse about, you know, skin disease. She doesn't seem to freak out that much, but she, uh, she just, she, she, she seems kind of terrible in kind of a really banal way that terrible people can be. <laughs> Right. She's she's clearly a selfish, a self-centered person. I mean, we should expect when the phone is ringing here at the end of the story that it's Della. You know, this is a world without cell phones, right? But we should be expecting that it's Della has gotten to her own home or back to work or something and can call Rainy to see if Rainy's okay, to check in on her or to tell Rainy that what happened is okay and that actually she'd like to reschedule lunch to be friends. I mean, there was plenty of time for Della to do that. So I think the fact that that we don't see that in this issue indicates that uh, that doesn't happen on page you know 25 of the comic after Mulligan has called. It just never happens. Della's just done with, with this. Yeah, Della, uh, she's an awful person. Yeah, she really is. Well, well, I think that's it for the scene by scene here, Brent. Let's uh, let's do the cover, the the title, and then talk about our favorite panel. Uh, what did you think of this cover? Um, I'm a big fan of the cover. Um, I like it a lot, and I don't have a lot of information about this cover uh, from the Sandman slip covers. Uh, Neil Gaiman's only comment on it uh, that I could find is that he that quote I love this cover, which fair enough. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's acrylic inks and leaves. I wonder if the leaves were used to trace kind of the um, the 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 three kind of almost slash marks or something um, off the side because those look kind of any, or if those are actually um, leaves that are somehow like melded into the art. But uh, I mean, you've got all of the collection of faces that are kind of somewhat falling off the face with different kind of emotions that are represented. And then you've kind of got the cloud behind it of some kind of a gas or something. And it's, um, um, but I, I like it a lot. Um, I mean, it's not, in my probably top 10 of covers, but, uh, it's definitely one that I like a lot. Um, and I particularly like the way that, um, Dave McKeon, you know, took advantage of the fact that she has green hair and the way that her hair is depicted here is just a lot of fun. Um, so, but what are your thoughts on the cover? Well, I really like it as well. It, it, it is, you know, there's a, there's a figure here is sort of about the, the middle of the, the, the page, uh, vertically, the middle of the, the page. And then, yeah, there are all these, these masks. Uh, I, I count five of them that are, are sort of tumbling from, uh, from her face. I mean, I think we're just assuming this is Urania Blackwell here. And these are variations on the standard idea of a, a tragedy or comedy mask right that we see in our pop culture but they've got different expressions they're done a little bit differently the the one uh was one at the bottom that has some some teeth showing in a kind of smile that actually i think has a real art deco look to it that i, I really quite like uh there's one that's only uh, partially constructed that actually looks kind of like an owl to me i also really like that one but i'm also but i'm i think i'm especially drawn to the face in the middle the figure in the middle which is a, a pure white all the others are a, are a shade of green it's all shades of green except for actually rainy her her arms are flesh colored her hands are touching her face but the face as we see it here is is white but it looks like a mask right it is not a 
human face here. But I, I'm not sure if we're actually meant to think that this is yet another mask that she's wearing or if this is her actual face now because her physiology has changed. What, what, what do you think? I mean, I think it's another f- fake mask that it's just not fully hardened yet because um, it doesn't seem to have any expressions associated with it, which, I mean, I guess brings us to our discussion of the title a little bit here, Glenn, but facade, it's just, you know, it's false, it's superficial. Um, and, and to me, the emotions that are captured and kind of the ideas of the mask that have fallen off um, are not true to, unfortunately, like the, the mask that is covering up how she really feels um, to project something to the world that she thinks is necessary to, to project to the world. Um, so I kind of interpret it that way, partially because we do see um, a different color for the skin on the two hands that um are touching the face. And so because of the color difference there, I assumed it was not her actual face, but again, just a fresh mask. But, uh, but what are your thoughts on kind of the title a bit as well as the question you put to me on the, uh, on whether that's really her face? Yeah. I mean, again, right. If, if it's not her face, if it is just another mask, I think that really actually emphasizes, really doubles down on the idea of facade, that this is a story about masks. It's just masks all the way down. Though though in the issue, we, we are seeing Rainey's face, but she herself doesn't want anyone to see her face, right? If she knew that we were there, she would be wanting to put a, a mask on, right? And so, uh, you know, I think in some ways, I think the title is asking us to think about masks in our own life. And that's certainly what death is doing, right? When she's talking about discarding old identities. You know, if we think of facade, not just as a, a mask, but but as a sort of persona that we put on where, and, and of course we all do that, right? That, that we... We have different personas that we put on in different aspects of our our life. You know, uh, you know, when when you and I are together, I'm I'm in Brent's friend's persona mode, which is certainly very different from when I am teaching in a classroom, for example, right? Then, uh, or when you go to work, right? These are uh, this is just a, a fact of of our existence. We, we put on these different aspects of our ourselves. But what I think we're seeing here is that Rainy doesn't really know who she actually is anymore. All she has are facades. And she also can't let anyone in, right? That 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 no one is seeing her true self, whether or not she sees any bit of her true self anymore. No one else can. She's afraid to show that to anyone else. And when your life is just facades all the way down, it's this life of of despair. And I, I think that that's what we get in the story. I do think actually Dave McKean has captured that quite well on the and the cover as well. And the title really emphasizes all of that. So, what was your favorite panel, Glenn? Yeah, there, there, there's not much in the way of landscapes in this <laughs> issue, you know, for me. Uh, I did like the Egyptian pyramid, but there was a lot of text over it, so it was not my thing. But what I have picked is actually from the last page, and it is, uh, it's just this black rectangle in the top left, which is, I don't know, maybe a strange choice, unless it was your choice too. Well, it's still a strange choice, even if it is your choice too, right? And yeah, this black rectangle at the top left of the, the final page. This is here to let us know that Rainy is is dead. It, it's, it's not by a itself an interesting bit of art, but it is an awesome use of art to tell the story, to tell us that even though we're going to see Rainey's body for two more panels, Rainey's not there anymore. And I, I just think it's brilliant. So that that was what I picked, uh, just a black rectangle. Uh, what did you pick? Uh, first, I want to just say that, I mean, that's a great pick. Um, that was not at all what I picked. But um, <laughs> I, I think what you've also hit on here is something really great that 
that comics can do where it can take a beat, you know, and if this had been, um, you know, I guess we could see if we could track down a version of the script for this issue, but, um, if this, this were converted into just text and just prose, this would be probably an ellipsis followed by a large break in the page followed by another ellipsis. But that doesn't do the justice that just like, nope, give me a panel, make the whole thing black. <laughs> um, and it just really like helps you uh, take the moment. No, the one I, um, and there were a lot of, there are a few ones I thought about um, runners up. Um, I really like if I wanted to cheat, there would be the, um, the image of the sun with the triptych of her kind of noticing how beautiful it is um, would have been probably my runner up. Um, but the one I went with actually is the title splash page of facade that, which we talked about before. Um, and there's just, the more I look at it, the more I kind of take away from this particular panel. Cause we talked about how she looks like something like a monster who's reeling in terror. The, um, how great a job Colleen Doran does of looking making her seem so anxious and so fragile and so terrified of everything. But yet, Having those masks creepily behind her, which is reminiscent of, you know, it makes me think of dealing with the Corinthian, even though that's not what's going on. But I almost my eyes almost want to put little teeth in those little eye sockets. Um, And because occasionally we've talked about Sandman as a horror comic, you know, my mind kind of goes there in some ways. But then the fact that that's all in the background, the masks are in the background and in some ways. Uh, Rainey's in the background too. What's in the foreground is this phone and the phone, the way that it's colored, it is lit up bright and shiny. It almost looks like a Cylon from Battlestar Galactica, either the original <laughs> series or the remake. And it's the, it's the thing causing the terror is that the phone is ringing. And on the one hand, it's just like, that's, it's such a minor irrelevant thing to be scared of. You don't have to answer the phone. First of all, second of all, it's just, it's also cold. Like it's literally with the coloration here. Um, I guess it shares a lot of colors. Now I look at it with the masks, um, but being in some ways a cold kind of dead thing. Um, and just how much rainy is kind of reeling away from this thing that, shouldn't have this amount of power, um, but it does have this power and it's dominant in the setting. Um, but I also like that we've got a couple books and some pencils and a pen and, you know, some cigarettes um, and a spoon and a pot with no plant of any kind in it. <laughs> <laughs> and then what looks like could maybe be a cassette tape, but I'm not quite sure what that's supposed to be. Um, but it, 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 the plastic it looks like a plastic case around something, but it could also be a small book. The way it's colored it looks more like a small book, but in the black and white version in the annotated Sandman, it looks more like it's a, um, like a plastic case containing something. But I really love this, um, particular panel. Well, and there's a there's an artist's pen here as well. I actually think this pot is actually a like a, a pen holder, pencil holder, but it's totally empty. This is clearly Colleen Duran's desk, right? <laughs> that she's she's drawn. I mean, she's probably staged it up here, but she's she's actually just doing a live drawing of her of her desk here. Uh, but it's it's great. This phone really fills me with nostalgia. Like I, I don't know why. Well, you know, I've been staring at this while you've been talking about it, Brent, and I've just been filled with this weird desire to use a phone like that. I don't want to call anyone. I don't want to talk to anyone on the phone. Please never call me. But I want to use this phone. I don't know why. <laughs> And the phone is such an interesting thing in the story because then when she answers the phone, like this is her source of, of excitement and joy in some ways that someone is calling her. 
Um, but her initial reaction is just complete abject terror at the fact the phone is ringing. <laughs> right. Because even though this is the thing that she's been yearning for, human human contact, she doesn't know how to do it anymore. Right. I think that's pretty clear. This is, you know, why she runs or is wrapped up in why she runs from the, the restaurant when her mask falls off, that she she just doesn't know what to do and and actually you know has been yearning for someone to to want to spend time with her and to be able to spend time with somebody but doesn't actually even know how to respond you know just to the ringing of the the telephone and that's a heartbreaking story and it is all captured just on the the just in the art on this title page it's it's, it's a great title page it's a it's a great panel well, I think that, uh, you know, now that we've talked about our favorite panels and now that I have an urge to go find an old phone like this and just hold it for a little while, I think uh, I think that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums or our subreddit and let us know what you thought of Facade. We raised a lot of questions here. Let us know what you think of the uh, the restaurant metaphor for the cosmology of the, the universe here. And as we said at the top of the show, there are now tons of new bonus episodes up on Patreon. And if you'd like to support the network and get access to those and, and all the other bonus episodes as well, please do check us out on patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. Uh, so we're going to be back next month with our wrap-up episode on on Dream Country. Very excited for that. But until then, pleasant dreams. <laughs>